0: All right. We are recording. Hello, Schnookums. How are you?
1: I am fine. As long as this day doesn't keep on repeating itself ad nauseum, we'll be okay.
0: <laughs> yes, happy Groundhogs Day. Um <laughs> let's see, you you wrote me when I asked you what you wanted to talk about yesterday, you <laughs> responded back. Uh, disgruntled rodents crawling out of dirty holes and I responded <laughs> perfect having no fucking clue what you were talking about um, oh <laughs> no I, I had no idea what you were talking about but I was like sounds good to me <laughs> so yes happy groundhog, groundhog day <laughs> for people for people outside does anyone outside of the US like we, we currently only have one person in the chat right now but I'm pretty sure that they do not live in the u s
1: it's an American thing does very so much
0: so Alex, do you know what Groundhog day is? They might not be they might not be on the on chat. oh, they say yep, okay cool. are you in the u s Alex by the way i don't I keep thinking that you aren't. I keep thinking you're u k yeah, that's right that's what I thought okay um so anyway, hello kittens my unicorns, my degenerates. Welcome to the House of Heretics podcast where Timothy and I drink coffee and talk about bullshit for your listening pleasure. As always, we we record this every Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and you are all welcome to join us. Also, a quick note, all features, all Patreon... uh. you, what are what's the term? All all Patreon Tears. tiers, yes. Now have access to all Patreon content. So, one dollar all the way up to ten dollars. You all get access to the content uh, because life is hard financially, and and uh, you know I want to. I, I've decided that I care more about building community than I do about making money. So, people get um, access to all of this content at the one dollar tier. Nice. So, anyway, how are you, Schnookums? What's on your mind?
1: Well, um, being well, it's forecasted to be snowed in here. So, I was snowed in like
0: that. two weeks ago, and it was very, yeah. it was very shining esque. It. it I couldn't, but I, I didn't have an opportunity to even enjoy the snow because let me tell you when I, I'm here in the South and in the South, when, when, when Southerners hear that snow is coming, it is, it ruins my life. I'm a grocery store manager for people who don't know. It fucking ruins my life <laughs> and I want to go up to every single frantic panicked customer in the store and be like i promise you you won't starve you have plenty of food in your pantry already you will not have to resort to cannibalism you won't have to eat your dog this is not the donner party like (laughs) you'll be fine but people panic so hard and then they did it again last weekend and there wasn't even any snow they they uh they forecast like half an inch and sales went up by like five thousand dollars that day which for me which for which for a a small grocery store that is a huge jump
1: right it was um <clears throat> uh, it we were supposed to get more than we have now so i'm thinking for the most part it's going to miss us Well that's although good. we did we did have some sleet
0: this morning, mm-hmm. and I ran in it, but... Oh, I'm isn't open. it fun? I love running in bad weather. It is, actually. I um, love running in bad weather. It Like, in rainstorms, I try not to run in thunderstorms for obvious reasons, um, but... Like, heavy rain, heavy snow, heavy ice, heavy wind. Like, all all of the adverse weather is really, really fun as a mm-hmm. runner. Yeah, I agree. Uh,
1: well, when, it, when there's actual snow, snow, it actually does feel nice on the feet. It feels very different running in the oh, snow. Yeah. Do you um, normally
0: run on pavement? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's okay. I I for me it's about half and half. I do half trails, half pavement. Anyway, um so Groundhog's Day, I f- what why? Why does Groundhog's Day even exist?
1: Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> and you seem started... like
0: the kind of person who would know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the actual uh, well, Bill Murray movie aside, I, I think most people start to think that Groundhog's Day has to do with a uh, the what happened to Bill Murray in his uh in his movie there, but um, Groundhog Day just had to do with this old folks' tale that when um, if a groundhog when it comes out of hibernation, uh, and for those of you who are not American and don't know what groundhogs are, just imagine a beaver without a tail, basically that's what it is, and uh, when they come out and if they see their shadow. That means there's six more weeks of winter. And if they don't see their shadow, that means spring is on its way. so, and it became a tradition. and they normally think but, it's around February second,
0: but why? <laughs> it's a very I, strange tradition. like it's a very weird tradition. how did how did this start? Who decided that a groundhog seeing its shadow on a particular day? <laughs> is what forecast the winter
1: i think it's probably just people observing and noticing seasons and changes and yeah uh that i'm i'm thinking that's probably where it started off
0: let's look this up oh my god origin of groundhog day also groundhogs carry plague let's see as in, as in the plague that like wiped out one third of Europe. Let's see here. First Groundhog Day featuring. Uh, okay, so this is from the History Channel. So take everything written here with a grain of salt. Um, on February second, eighteen eighty-seven, Groundhog Day featuring a rodent meteorologist is celebrated for the first time at Gobbler's Knob, in Wow, punks, um. Punxsutawney. Thank you. Pennsylvania. According to tradition, if a groundhog comes out of its hole... Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Groundhogs called woodchuck. Let's see here. They go into hibernation. Uh, In 1887, a newspaper editor belonging to a group of groundhog hunters from Punxsutawney... Say that again.
1: Punxsutawney.
0: Thank you. Called the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club declared that Phil the Punxsutawney Groundhog was America's only true weather forecasting groundhog <laughs> the line of groundhogs that have since been known as Phil might be America's most famous uh Amer- might be America's most famous groundhogs but other towns across North America now have their own weather predicting rodents from Birmingham bill to Staten Island chuck okay well that did not okay answer any of my questions but that's fine
1: well it looks like it's germans fault actually of course it is uh it's the pennsylvania dutch brought it over from germany
0: oh interesting Uh, so
1: but they don't have groundhogs over there they have badgers oh and there's
0: a round (laughs) wait Wait, do you uh alex just just posted an article um the new york post yeah uh in uh new jersey's weather predictor milltown mel dies just before groundhog day oh no this was this uh article released yesterday so and, and alex said uh i guess this means we're all we're all doomed he's dead <laughs> yes so because the groundhog died we're we're all fucked we're all going to die um also groundhogs carry plague i know i said that earlier but it's i thought
1: armadillos did but i didn't armadillos um, do
0: too but no and i mean like the the plague like bubonic plague yeah yeah the plague that wiped out one third of europe and everyone should go listen to last podcast on the left's series on the plague because it is the most horrific thing I've heard in a long time
1: it was a crazy thing like the just plague.
0: the the truly apocalyptic horror of that period of history was incredible and um, it's incredible that the plague is still around and it lives in groundhogs and they told a story about these um, frat boys who were like, playing around in a cornfield, and they stuck their head into a groundhog burrow trying to get it out. And within a week, all three of these guys were dead from oh from plague. I'm so, it's plague. still around. <laughs> it still exists. Hold on, the cat once in. Come on. Come on. So... Have you heard of the God Helmet? Oh, no. What is that? <laughs> so, um, have you read um, Mike McGarg's book, Finding God in the Waves? Yes. He writes about the God Helmet in it. Okay, I had to look the, it up again because it's the, been a bit. The God Helmet is a piece of equipment, allegedly, a piece of equipment that stimulates the part of the brain that is responsible for mystical experience?
1: Uh, yes, I remember this part now.
0: Okay, so because my partner has some uh, disposable income, he got a god helmet. Oh, can you still you hear me?
1: You just muted yourself or unplugged your mic there. Can you still hear me? Uh, You're not coming over very well at all. Last thing that came across was because my partner has disposable income.
0: Oh, God damn it. Oh, there you go. Okay. I have no idea what just happened, but we're good now.
1: You had your arm resting on your mic, something like that. And that's when it happened. So I don't know if that was corresponding or it was just correlation does not always equal causation. So
0: Correct. So, um, yeah, the... um, Hold so on. Is. Let me make let me make sure my audio is still working and audio hijack. Okay. Check, check, check. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, so, because my partner has some disposable income, he ordered <laughs> he he got a god helmet, <laughs> and uh, I sent you a picture of it without context several weeks ago. Oh goodness! Uh, if you're you just laughed at the picture. Um, I don't think I provided any context. Where did it go? Hold on. I'll, I'll put this in the chat. Well, I'll, I'll figure out how to put it in the chat. Okay. Yes. It's the one where I have the headband and the. Yes. I remember that.
1: (laughs) And I said that needed to be your new uh, profile picture. Yes. Yes.
0: So. It was a really cool experience, and I don't so I don't know how much of it was self induced it's it it's really hard to say if it actually works or not, judging from my experience. I don't actually know if it works or not um, because the power of suggestion is really powerful we are very prone to the power of suggestion especially with things like mystical experience and so it, it is entirely possible that i had a self-induced mystical experience um but it was really cool i i put it on for about 45 minutes and at first i just so my eyes were closed i had those those eye shields on And at first I was just seeing, like, geometric patterns. Just, like, flashing. Geometric. It it was was almost hallucinogenic. Just, like, geometric shapes, like, shifting and appearing. And then I had kind of this deep sense of well-being and the feeling of warmth and like warmth and love and light, the kind of experience that I used to have uh, when I would speak in tongues when I was a charismatic Christian years ago. And kind of that feeling of just overwhelming uh, kind of joy and peace and quiet and and light and warmth. It was, it's like a f- sensation of physical warmth. So that was cool. And then... John, my partner, the, the coolest part is that he, so it was divided into two sessions. And so then he switched it over to another configuration um, and instantly that feeling turned off like it had like it was a faucet that had been turned off. And that was when he had switched the configuration and it started to stimulate another part of the brain. It was a very, very, very cool experience. Mm -hmm. And then I, during the second session, so it was two sessions that made a total of 45 minutes. In that second session, I had this feeling of like lifting, of rising. It was very cool. Like it was... this physical sensation of rising almost like I was, I was rising out of my body or rising up. It was very cool. And um, again, I was obviously primed to experience something Mm -hmm. and that alone is enough to ensure that you will experience something (laughs) like that alone is enough to to for some people to ensure that that they will have a cool experience. So, and I know that I'm very prone to mystical experience. I think I am just naturally wired to have kind of weird numinous experiences. Regardless, it says something really cool about the human mind. It's like if if the god helmet was working if it was the thing that was stimulating this response inside of me well that means that that there is a biological component of mystical experience which of course we all know but it's still kind of radical it it what it suggests is that religious people aren't lying <laughs> when they say that they are experiencing things and I think that's really challenging for a lot of atheists. They aren't just being delusional. They're actually experiencing something real mm. inside of their own brain. That And that doesn't mean that what they are perceiving about the world around them is real, but it means that they're having a real experience. So that's what that means. On the other hand, it means if it if the God helmet wasn't what was stimulating this experience for me, it still means that altered states of consciousness are are very easily accessible to us even through something as simple as the power of suggestion. And that's also super cool. Does that make sense?
1: Oh well, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. following along, I it I had thoughts going every single which way on it. Yeah. I, first, I thought it was problematic. Then I think, no, it's not really problematic. Because um, mm. uh, the way I thought it was problematic is like, well, you can simulate religious experiences or mystical experiences through this. Uh, but then I said, well, d- that really doesn't discount, though, the mystical experiences that people have had as well. So.
0: And what's the difference between a simulated mystical experience and a real mystical experience?
1: Um, who does the simulating?
0: Hmm. I don't know.
1: No, I mean, I mean, that's what I would. Who does the? Who initiates this? The experience. So,
0: there. so, a, so, an authentic mystical experience would be something that arises naturally. I don't know. Whereas a mm -hmm. where? Yeah, I don't know. And and what's so interesting to me is so this device was invented was invented in the 80s. And I personally think that the device has some good evidence to support it. Um, A lot of the scientific studies that were done on it were in my limited non-scientific understanding fairly rigorous um but what it the the cultural controversy over it since the 80s has been really interesting because you have atheists being like ha checkmate (laughs) checkmate theists this is all in your head and then you have other atheists being like Oh, this proves that what religious people are saying is actually true.
1: Mm-hmm. That's that's what that's basically similar to the thought processes going in my head. Yeah, um, like um, well, what is what is uh, simulated? What is actual? What is real? Um, yeah, exactly. And who who determines that? So
0: and and then and then on the theistic side, on the religious side, you have. Religious people who are very threatened by it, mm-hmm. who feel like it is infringing on their territory, and, so, and, and it feels very threatening to them. And then there are other religious people who say, this is proof that we are wired for God. This is proof that God designed us to have a connection with him. <laughs> and so it's just like the, the kind of culture war, the debate over this device in, in terms of how different people interpret it is mm-hmm. just so fascinating. Right. Some people are very threatened by it. Other people embrace it as proof that religious experience is all psychological. And then there are other people who embrace it as proof that God invented the human mind To have a connection with him Mm -hmm. and so it's like everyone is just imposing their priors on this device Mm. Um, yeah it's really 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 interesting but I I had that experience and I walked away just kind of um, amazed that something happened and I don't know (coughs) what happened like, I don't know what the trigger was. I don't know if it was self-induced. I don't know if it was a placebo effect or the power of suggestion, or if it was genuinely the electromagnetic pulses stimulating parts of my brain. I don't know. Or or maybe a combination of both. I just have no idea. But regardless, I walked away from that experience with like, oh, that was really cool. Um, I had a real experience. Mm-hmm either way.
1: Yeah, I get that some, uh, a lot through meditation. Me too. Um, trying to find that, uh, it's not formula. Ah, uh, but cause I notice every now and then it, like when I do the exact same thing, the experience is not repeated in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know exactly why it's like that. I just know that each meditation experience I have is very unique.
0: Yeah, same.
1: So I don't know for certain on that, and and I hate it when I'm trying to talk about meditation because it's like next to impossible for me to describe it, and I feel like I'm
0: like... It uh, is next to impossible. So one of my favorite meditation practices of course as i've been exposed to from sam harris mm-hmm. it's called the headless way have you heard of this it is the trippiest
1: form this of is, meditation
0: i have ever encountered in my life this
1: is a type of body scanning no okay no then i don't know this one go okay, ahead okay
0: so it's by a british guy it it was developed by a british guy named douglas harding let's see if I can explain the headless way in a way that does not make me sound absolutely insane. So we very often have a feeling of being a self within our head. Usually. So, you know, if we close our eyes and, and ask, where am I, Feel, where do I feel like my seat of awareness is? It's usually a sensation right here behind the eyes or in the face. It's a feeling. And, or if you look across the room at something, so I'm currently looking at a ghost poster, I have this feeling of being a subject, of a subject object duality of a subject behind my eyes looking across space at the object, which is the ghost poster. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise behind non-dual meditation is that that whole subject-object thing is an illusion and that oh. everything is just our consciousness. Our And so... The headless way is where you in a meditation practice, you you use your visual field and you look around you to and you look for your head. Notice that your head is nowhere within your visual field. Mm-hmm. Look for your head. And there is something about that within a meditative process where you realize that your identification of your sense of self being a, ta- being a sensation behind your eyes is an illusion. And where your head should be is simply the world. Yeah. And it's, it's an incredible experience. It's almost like your head... Your your <clears> head vanishes. You have this sense of your head vanishing, and your your sense of identification with your face vanishing, and suddenly who you are is your entire field of awareness. And uh, one of my favorite um, headless methods is to point at yourself. So take your you take your finger and you point at yourself and you ask yourself, what am I pointing at? Mm-hmm. And in kind of a weird way, you realize I'm pointing at nothing. And fr- where in my frame of reference, what in my frame of reference am I pointing at? Well, nothing. There's nothing that I'm pointing at. There's just emptiness where my finger is being pointed at as a matter of experience, as a matter of consciousness. There is what I'm pointing at is simply nothing. And then that experience dissolves that duality between subject and object. I have no idea if what I just explained makes sense, (laughs) but it is really, really cool. No,
1: I actually totally get it. And I found the guy's website. So I put it there in the, in the notes there on the chat, um, for there, um, but what, the reason I was saying, uh, asking if it were body scanning, is because this one where I had the most mystical experience ever with meditation involved body scanning. Mm. And the very last part of it um, uh, was with Michael Gunger doing the meditation is like, see if you can remove your head. And yes. And I was like, and that freaked me out when that happened. So yes, it's
0: yeah. it's, yeah, no, that, that sounds very similar to the headless way. Yeah. Or basically the same thing. Right. And it can be incorporated. So, so the headless meditations can be incorporated into other meditations like standard Vipassana and body scan and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's, I don't know. It's, it's destabilizing when you first experience yes,
1: it. Yes, that's, that's the word, destabilizing, yes. And, uh, yeah, go on. No, because it's like you're trying to... Your sense of individualism goes away. Yes. And that can be very disconcerting, especially if all of a sudden you what you thought you knew is perhaps not what it it actually is. And so that, but at the same time, it can be comforting in a way to realize that how much we are interconnected with each other.
0: Um, Yeah. It's, I find it incredibly exciting. mm -hmm. Like when I, when I first experienced it, when I first experienced the dissolving of the self, um, and there, there are so many different ways within meditation to do that. So there's mm-hmm. the direct path and there's the indirect path. And the indirect path is more of a typical, you know, like mindfulness practice where you're paying just minute detail a minute incredible attention to the minute detail of uh, and and just you know like exquisite attention to every minute detail of experience and it it kind of unfolds naturally and the the abandonment of the self just kind of unfolds naturally and then there's there are other methods there are other schools of meditation where it's a direct path and where it's immediate and it's, it's like looking at an optical illusion and, and mentally forcing that optical illusion to shift is what it's like. And both, I think both are really beautiful, the direct and indirect path. I think both have their benefits and the way sam harris describes it is as as finding the optical blind spot mm. and that the the sense of self is an illusion but it is but that but we can teach ourselves to see it to see that it is an illusion at any time in the same way we can teach ourselves to see the blind spot. And the way you see the blind spot is you will get Stephen King here. You close one eye. So I'm looking at the T on this book cover and you hold it out arm's length and then you move it to the side and then boom, the T is gone because it is in my optical blind spot. Mm -hmm. And so the optical blind spot is where a nerve passes through the retina or or where, yeah, I think where a nerve passes through a retina. And Mm so, our brain fills in that spot, but uh, but if you look for it, you can find it. And Sam Harris draws a comparison between that and non-dual selfless meditation, where it's like, it's a very, he, he takes like a very technical and practical approach to it, where you can learn specific techniques that just, obliterates that sense of self Mm -hmm. in the same way you can find the optical blind spot. Yeah. Boy, my
1: mind is going at like a thousand miles an hour right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's on your mind?
1: Oh, well, I mean, well, this has nothing, well, has nothing and everything to do with it. Um, yeah. uh, A friend of mine in Germany, um, uh, who is, uh, Salvation Army officer um, is uh, was uh, dying of cancer. Oh no! And last night, uh, yesterday, he wrote. Uh, he has this blog uh, in, in English, It's called "Life and Eternity" (Leben und Ewigkeit) in German. Mm. And he said last yesterday, "This is my last post on this account." This evening I'll be receiving medication for a palliative sedation. Mm-hmm. So my pain and suffering on this world will have an end. And then he quotes John 316.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that, like Yeah. Yeah, go on. Go on.
1: I know. I that just hit me in so many ways because I know him to be a very kind and compassionate man um, Mm. who was dealt a really bad hand when it came to cancer. I mean, I I keep I kept on reading his posts about what was going on and how nothing seemed to be going the right way. And Mm. but so I don't know. I mean, that's been in my head, though, too. And then talking about meditation like this, it just Brings it all into a weird. Yeah, stew. of course.
0: Well, I mean, tragedy is going to happen to all of us in some way. Right. And I really think that the wisdom and insight gained from meditation is the way, mm-hmm. at least for me, to confront the innate tragedy of death and it's like there and the the intrinsic the the innate tragedies of life Mm -hmm. disease death illness Mm -hmm. um heartbreak you know just all of the stuff that befalls us and it's and it's going to befall all of us like there's no escaping that shit life's going to fuck us up no matter what um Mm -hmm we're going to get a terrible diagnosis or someone close to us will death will likely be painful and will likely be humiliating right like this is just these are just the facts of life and more and more i really feel like meditation and these ancient practices that have been passed on to us are the way mm-hmm. forward and the way to uh deal with it is the wrong way to fray but to but to confront it with grace mm-hmm. and to not and and to have a chance of dying a good death.
1: Well, and I I read the comments and a lot of them were were um I don't want to say trite because that's not the right word. I yeah. mean, it's, it, that's uh too harsh, uh, formulaic. That's also some bad, but, um, but, oh, those, um, platitudes, there are a lot of platitudes that were said. Um, not all of them, definitely not all of them. A lot of them were, um, taking leave of him and, um, um what i had written uh it's sort of hard to translate into english um because i mean i i just wanted to be honest with him about um what i myself was feeling about it and um so hold on, let me get back over there to the site but um what i had told him, it's like, in English, uh, let me just look. I said, uh, the tears are starting now. It has been a joy for me to know you, you are, um, oh, and I can't say this in English, uh, as because, because it's my, one of my favorite words, you are resting in God. The, the German word is is a beautiful word that means surrounded, buried, secure um comforted and uh that's all i could think of right now on that and then i see other people saying hey we'll see each other again a lot of people said that we'll see each other again and i was talking to a friend of mine who is american and um, actually met him a couple of weeks ago um and didn't realize that he had cancer. Uh, I, you know, it's not something that you go and announce to everybody. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm dying of cancer, by the way. Um, you don't. You just. It's not something that you tell everyone. And um, uh, he, I told him yesterday. It's like, hey, Mark is dying tonight. And um, and uh, and he asked, and he asked me how I was feeling. I like, got a lot of mixed emotions about it. And he asked me why, and I said, because death is so permanent.
0: Yes. (laughs) And it's also fundamentally mysterious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lean towards nothing happens when I die. I vanish. My consciousness vanishes. But the fact is no one knows <laughs> like absolutely no one knows what happens after we die i i if i were to you know if i were to if i were forced to put money on what i think would happen i think that when i die nothing happens my consciousness ends but the fact is there is still so much that we don't know about the universe and there's still so much. I mean, there's, we practically know nothing about consciousness. Everyone should go listen to my interview with Philip Goff about that, about how little we actually understand about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so I'm ultimately agnostic. Like I'm, I'm agnostic. I lean towards nothing happening, but none of us know what happens when we die. And I, and I kind of, and, and, and while I think that's way more terrifying, I also think it is way more respectful and compassionate to lean into that and to not try to give pat answers, simple answers, like we will see you again. We don't, we don't know that no one knows that and so instead of leaning into that i feel like it's way more compassionate and maybe even more consoling might be more terrifying but it's more humane to lean into the mystery
1: well i think i mean i i'm seeing it from both sides Mm. also um Anne Lamott has this wonderful phrase that I absolutely love. And she quoted, she's quoted a a priest that she knew. And she said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Yeah. And so when my doubts spring up to that, um, and I see people say things like, hey, we will see each other again they're leaning on to the faith side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know either uh, what happens for certain um, when you die, For because if you want to ask me for certainty for clear cut answers, besides the physical parts of decomposition and all that that goes with it. Um, yeah. I could tell you all about that, but, um, does, uh, do we then really disappear then? Or is that, I mean, what happens to that consciousness of, I don't know for certain and yeah. I'm okay with that. And I'm saying that hesitantly. So... <laughs> I, I've,
0: I've, so, uh, I've had to force myself to be okay with it because I don't have any other choice. Well, like, I don't have a choice but to be okay with it. Well, and
1: and here's the part that I think maybe both you and I can agree on is like when you let the terror overcome you, it paralyzes you and then you're not really living life.
0: Yes, absolutely. And
1: I I think no matter if you're atheist, a Satanist, or a theist, or a panentheist like myself, um, that paralyzation does no good for anybody, especially for yourself
0: absolutely so yeah i mean life is for living there's a trite uh saying for you but yeah no i mean it's not trite i don't think it's trite i you know i and i've talked about this some on the show before i know i talked about it in my interview with ben burgess this week about christopher hitchens um
1: yes i did listen to that yesterday
0: yeah and, and i talked about this with shiva honey where it's just I'm thinking about death a lot lately mm-hmm. and it isn't a morbid thought. It isn't. I I think, I think that I am solidly an adult now. <laughs> That's why. And part of adulthood, you know, maybe contrary to popular belief, I'm actually an adult and <laughs> uh, I may not always act like it, but I'm technically an adult mm-hmm. and I'm just intensely aware that I am aging into this body, even though I'm still really young. I'm 33, but I'm, but I feel, but there's like this sense of, Oh, I can actually now feel my body changing in a way that I couldn't when I was in my teens and twenties, I can actually kind of feel my own limitations in a way that I didn't when I was in my twenties. And, that isn't saying that I, you know, like I can't get out of bed and I have arthritis and I'm, you know, struggling with cancer and I know that death is around the corner. No, not at all like that. It's like I'm still really, really, really young, but it's just like this very subtle sense of, oh, I have limitations. I'm not like the super athlete that I was in my early 20s when I could, you know, run for miles and do hot yoga and, uh you know do strength training and just, like I was a, I was in very 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 good shape and there were, it felt like there were very few limitations on me now I don't have that experience anymore mm. and so I've been thinking a lot about death and it isn't a morbid thought it's just this awareness of death in a way that I wasn't previously mm. and also I used to believe with a certainty that I was going to live forever. And I know that's as a traditional Christian, I believed that my consciousness was immortal. And looking back now, that's kind of crazy to me. Hmm. That's, that's kind of insane to me that I just took for granted that I was going to live literally forever, that I was literally immortal. That's what I believe. That's what I was raised to believe, that because I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I, meaning my consciousness, would exist in perpetuity for all eternity. It's crazy to me that I believed that because now I don't. And the the leap the leap from believing that you will live forever to where i am now which is the acknowledgement that i will likely that that there is a non in, that there is a not insignificant chance that my consciousness will vanish at the point of death that is literally a an infinite leap literally an infinite leap Going from I am living forever, I am literally going to live for eternity, my consciousness is going to exist for eternity in the presence of God, to I will have maybe, if I'm lucky, 90 plus around, you know, hope, you know, a good long life 90 to 100 years, average life 70 years of consciousness that is literally an infinite leap how the fuck am i supposed to deal with that from i'm from believing that i'm going to live forever to i probably won't live forever but ultimately i don't know what happens after i die mm. kind of a tentative materialist agnosticism that is a leap that is simply impossible to articulate <laughs> like that is that is a jump that is simply impossible to express. And and I don't think that and I and I again I wish that and I say this so often, I wish that my fellow non religious people had some respect for the magnitude of that leap and the existential terror that it generates. Mm -hmm. If you've spent your entire life believing that you were going to live forever and then suddenly you're confronted with the possibility that you won't, uh, that is a Lovecraftian level of horror. Mm. Yeah. I just...
1: I think right now all I can do is be at peace yeah. with whatever happens. And when it comes to my faith, there is this song. Oh goodness. It was a, I think it was a Kirk Franklin song. And if, for those of you who don't know, Kirk Franklin is like a, a gospel singer um, that did a lot of uh, great work, but I want to see if I can find it. I want to find this. Okay, I believe that was him. Uh, Maybe it wasn't him. I had to find these words because uh, they're so important. Okay. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't Kirk Franklin. Um, it was, uh, Andre Crouch. I apologize. Um, but this is, uh, the, these are the words he wrote. Um, you may ask me why I serve the Lord. Is it just for heaven's gain or to walk those mighty streets of gold and to hear the angels sing is it just to drink from the fountain that never shall run dry or just to live forever and ever in that sweet, sweet by and by? And then here comes the chorus. Here's the answer. But if heaven never was promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life, living in a world of darkness. You came and brought me the light. I remember this from when I was a little kid mm. and, um, And I had to think that if my faith does not change for people, for myself and for people that are around me right now when I'm alive and I'm waiting for something to happen when I die, then I don't have the whole point of my faith then. Absolutely. um, And so, and when I see other people living in their faith and their religion um, whether it is as a Satanist or as a Muslim or as a Buddhist or as a Christian, if they are doing good in this world and are bringing light and life into this world, then I think they're doing what what needs to be done and that they are living a fulfilled life. Um,
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of my one of the most universally known satanic symbols. Hold on. Mm -hmm. The pentagram. Yeah. I have one here. Pretty wooden pentagram. Mm -hmm. It's on my altar. So the traditional pentagram is upright, where the, the point is up, and that tends to represent, you know, a concern with the spiritual and the heavenly. Mm-hmm. The, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, that has its place. So this isn't me bashing that at all. Mm-hmm. The satanic path is the inversion of that. And that is a concern with the material world. That is a concern with the carnal, with the here and now. And I think a lot of people. So Penemu calls Satanism a carnal religion, and I, and he says that he doesn't mean that. Just dropped the pentacle, and he says that he, you know, doesn't mean that as like material girl Madonna, right. but, but as it is a it is a religion of the senses. But it's also it, so it's a religion of the senses and sensuality. But it's also a religion of concern for the living conditions of living conscious creatures here and now. Mm-hmm. And it isn't necessarily concerned with the next life. It's concerned with this life and it isn't necessarily concerned with the, um, with the heavenly it's concerned with the earthly. And I love that symbol Within Satanism, that inversion of the Pentacle down to Earth, and it's like this grounding down to Earth um, to be concerned about the material conditions of people now. Right, A- and um, yeah, I love that. And as far and like you said, anyone who who is also concerned with that, like anyone who is first and foremost concerned about the well-being of their neighbor is someone who I think is um, a good person, right? for lack of a better term.
1: Well, and okay, <laughs> there. <laughs> I've said this before in another, and I'll just bring it up again. Uh, Jesus tells in his teachings the story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I know you know this, but for those mm-hmm. of you who don't know it uh, and what a Samaritan was— um, You got to remember, Jesus's audience was um, primarily Jewish, um, with some exceptions, of course. And Samaritans were like the blood enemies of the Jews. They just did not mix at all. Um, Mm. They hated each other for various different and basically had to do with lines of faith and blood purity and all sorts of other unfortunate things. But they hated each other and a jewish teacher was trying to and this is part of jewish uh, rhetoric and this is how they talked with each other this is how they engaged each other uh was having a nice little debate with jesus and says how do i get eternal life and um jesus told him the story about this good samaritan um about there's a man walking on the highway who gets mugged and robbed and left for dead and two people passed by him. One was a Jewish priest, and the other was a Jewish Levite who was a temple worker, people who probably should have known better but uh, would have also been correct in not helping them out because if they had gotten blood on them, then they would have been um, ceremonially unclean to serve in the temple. So they left right. him for dead there. And then along comes a Samaritan who went and saw the man helped him even though he was a blood enemy paid for his medical bills and and uh got him help the help that he needed and jesus and i i just go back to the original question i was like um what do i do must i do to have eternal life and it was the samaritan who got it the samaritan who according to jews had the wrong beliefs had the wrong theology but had the absolute right actions and this was a person who got eternal life and so i and so i'm when i see all these people fighting over doctrine and dogma um that that frustrates me to no end same uh, several weeks ago um we had one of our oldest ladies in our congregation at church my church is the disciples of christ and uh She was asked to give the sermon, but really what she did, she just talked off the top of her head and was great just listening to her talk. Mm She, she's, I think she's in her eighties, I believe. Um, But one of the things that she said, and I just loved it. she said, you know, lots of people criticize us and the disciples of Christ because we have no, um, uh, we have no dogma. And she said, um, that's been like one of the criticisms that we in the disciples of christ that you can believe anything and everything but she mm-hmm. said um but he said it's tr- really true about us we have no creed but christ and yeah i loved that <laughs> yeah that's lovely it, it uh, i'm just
0: also i mean yeah. go ahead i'm very skeptical of the real religion litmus yes text. I hate it. I, I fucking hate it. And part of the reason why I hate it is because I'm a Satanist, and so my real religious credentials are constantly under fire. And people are constantly trying to come up with the measures of a real religion. Well, a real religion has has a robust theology. TST does not have a robust theology, in part, <laughs> in part because it's so young. You know, like it started in 2013. So, of course it doesn't. Of right. course it doesn't have a robust theology. It, It's very young, and then Satanism in general is still very young. And so it, it's like we're still working on it. We're still developing that. But that doesn't change the fact that it is an authentic religion. Authent, authentic religion is is separate from how robust the theology is, how new or old it is, how big or small it is. I mean, whether it has a book or not, whether mm-hmm. it has a central book or not, whether you know, just all of these all of these various things that people try to use as like the measuring stick of what a real religion is. Right. And um it to me it is always so annoying because it is fundamentally limiting and dis- disrespectful to various religions. If you say well all religions require a deity, well then well there goes huge swaths of modern Judaism and huge swaths of eastern religion.
1: Of Buddhism has no God. Exactly.
0: And if you say, well, it requires supernaturalism, well, there go more huge swaths. If you say, well, it requires a a central book, a central text, well, there go indigenous religions. Mm -hmm. If you say it requires a gathering place, a physical gathering place, well, there goes a lot of the online religions that Mm -hmm. are that are also valid if you say well it can't be new well there goes wicca like (laughs) which was founded in the 60s like any at any point if we try to limit religion and of course it can't be everything like there there has there does have to be a limit to the edges otherwise everything is religion But that, where that line is, is a constant source of debate for religious scholars. Mm. And very often attempts to limit it, to put, to say, well, it requires a deity, or it requires a text, or it requires it to be old, or it requires a supernatural belief, or whatever it is, will inevitably like cut out a vast swath of what is accepted to be religion. (laughs) Anyway.
1: No, I mean, uh, my. My um, pastor for this week uh, for this week's sermon, he's a- actually crowdsourcing material, and he was asking people about when they felt ostracized by other people because of the way they believed. And for me, I told him it was when somebody told me that he and I don't worship the same God. And I said, this at first frustrated me and comforted me at the same time. It frustrated me because I considered this person to be a brother in the faith and somebody I really could reconcile with. And uh, even though we might believe slightly differently, we still had things in common. But at the same time, I was comforted in the fact that his idea of God was not my idea of God. And I would choose my idea of God over his
0: every absolutely day. yeah and it has a huge impact on how we live like right. anyway we we need to wrap this up we're oh at my the goodness. hour i look at but, that now. um yeah but this has been great and thank you everyone who has listened in uh on the stream and after the fact and um we'll see you soon go experience having no head look up the headless way what's the website headless.org uh, yeah headless.org Go check it out. Do the really simple exercises. You'll, it, it's trippy as fuck, and you might have an interesting experience.
1: All right.
0: Anyway, bye-bye. Goodbye.